Welcome to a new summer episode of EU Watchdog Radio. My name is Hans van Schare, researcher at Corporate Europe Observatory, also known as CEO. And in this episode, we will very exceptionally talk about ourselves, about CEO as a lobby watchdog, and we will dive into how it all started 25 years ago. Yep, you heard that right. This year, we celebrate our 25th anniversary. But we celebrated in a rather moderate way, since at the start of the year the pandemic was still raging and soon after a war started on the European continent with a subsequent energy and food crisis. Not exactly a very festive momentum. But while discussing the history of CEO, we will automatically also discuss parts of the political and economical history of the European Union as we know it today. And we sincerely hope that by listening to co-founders of CEO, Olivier Houdeman and Belen Balagna, who explain how it all began, you'll understand a bit more of why the Europe- European Union functions today as it does. Here we go for a trip down memory lane. Olivier Belen, welcome to this anniversary podcast. Um, 25 years of CEO, uh, lobbying uh, watchdog and researching and campaigning. Do you feel in any way it's a time for celebrating? Do you feel in a festive mood or what is your mood when, when you think about 25 years CEO? I think it's something very special, uh, 25 years. Um, it's a long time. Uh, we're still around. We've managed to renew ourselves. We've achieved a lot also, I think. Um, at the same time, some of the, the, the problems that we created CEO to to expose and, and address, they're still there. They're, they're there in a, in a very intense form. So that gives motivation to uh, continue. Yeah. All right. And you, Belen? No, I agree. I also think it's very nice to think also on the team of CEO now. Like uh, when we were st- when we started, we were four. <laughs> now we're 14. We have you, Joanna, a lot of new people. Very nice. New blood and new energy yeah, to continue yeah. the fight and struggle for yeah. a fairer and more just Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to discuss the the first early stages of, of CEO, and one important year is 1997. Um, and you published, uh, Olivier, a report um, called Europe Inc. Can you tell a bit about why and what was the content and the aim of that yeah. report? Yeah. Well, uh, yes, uh, this report we wrote uh, during six months of quite intensive mm-hmm. research and doing interviews and, and, and the actual writing. And um, we decided to, to spend those six months uh, because we had discovered as part of our work as uh, activist researchers that there was this, uh, this huge problem of corporate influence, corporate power in, in shaping the direction that the EU was taking. And... Um, it was something that really uh, made us very worried because uh, there was this corporate agenda that would take Europe in a very 
destructive direction, we thought, and feel uh, today still. Um, and we, uh, we were quite astonished that there was no discussion about what that corporate agenda was about and, and what it would lead to. Um, yeah, so in our work, we had discovered these things and we thought, well, this is really something we need to dig into and it's something that we want progressive movements in Europe to know about and, and discuss uh, what to do about and on, on the content of the, the, what, what, what did the report describe pr precisely as, as concrete as possible? Yeah. Well, the report uh, really showed how uh, corporate lobby groups, and particularly one called the European Roundtable of Industrialists, had had this very, very active and agenda-setting role in, in uh, helping bring about some of these very big flagship projects that the, mm. that the EU was working on at the time. So they already uh, helped the single market get off the ground. That's something that has been had been proposed before, but only took off in the second half of the eighties with the with the political support of this this powerful lobby group, and then at the, um, a few, uh, some years later, the European Single Currency, um, and uh, also uh, specific projects like the construction of uh, a whole uh, network of of motorways of. I think more than 10,000 kilometers of new motorways in Europe. And those are things that uh, we um, we saw that they were part of this corporate agenda. And and that uh, industry lobby groups were very, very proactive in this stage long before anyone else heard about it, getting these these, these projects endorsed. And and then the environmental movement would fight a kind of rear back, um, uh, rear guard battle, um, uphill battle, uh, but it would be too late. So those are the things we... Uh, okay, that's, that's so in 1997, when you published this report, um, the awareness, you say, about what Europe, where it was heading and what how it was constructed, basically, was really relatively low. How was the report received? What, 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 can, you, what can you remember about this? Yeah. Well, the thing is, when, when we made this report, I mean, CEO didn't exist. We were... Um, two of us and the other two co-founders of CEO, we were working in ACID, which was a, a youth activist movement um, based in Amsterdam. And then we were working on the EU and we were working on multinationals on, and we were working on transport campaigns. So um, the audience to which we presented was basically fellow activists and other um, left movements who came together for the 97 Amsterdam uh, Treaty, and I think it was kind of well received, but maybe, but not at that moment, but a bit later. I think at the moment it was not really realized what it meant, and um, and we were not still like um, you know like selling our or, or trying to feed our things to the press or to the. It was really mainly addressed to social movements that were part of this uh, counter EU summits. So in a way, the lacking of a real critical debate about Europe already then, um, and actually it has changed a lot over the years, I assume, but that back then it was really non-existent almost. It was, you need to be in favor of the European Union and that's it. Yeah, back, back then there was very little attention for what was decided in Brussels or on the EU level. Uh, very little media coverage, very little discussion mm -hmm. anywhere, and in, including in, in, in social movements, in, in yeah. NGOs. So that was a big problem. Um, so the, there were these big decisions taken, 
uh, on the EU level, and, and they would really they were really the kind of decisions that would really transform our societies. You, I mean, we saw that uh, we at the time these were really big decisions. Uh, they would they would be decisions that would, that were a threat to the welfare state, uh, threat to the, the kind of direction we need to take to avoid eco- ecological disaster and so on. And and those decisions were not debated in society. Um, so that was a, f- a really fundamental problem at the time. And today there is more attention. Uh, still uh, a long way to go, I think, before decisions taken mm. on the EU level are discussed the way they should be. But it's, it's, it has it has improved somewhat. Back then, it was it was uh, those decisions were taken in a kind of vacuum, I would say. Yeah, mm. because at the time already, for example, climate change. Belen, you are working still a lot on climate change and energy policies. Mm. Back then, there was a sort of recognition. It was the Kyoto Protocol, the, day, the, the mm. days of the Kyoto Protocol. Mm. But um, already there, um, I guess you could see why we are still lagging so much behind when it comes to efficient climate policies. I guess it's, it's the, the, the root yeah. of the problems are what Olivier just described. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. At that moment, we were all doing everything. We were working on trade, on climate, on agri, on everything for quite some years. But indeed, we actually were quite active on 97 and in 2000, uh, where was the year of COP26, and where actually the 97 was the Kyoto Protocol and then the design of the market-based mechanism who became like the main policy on how to set climate ambitions, both at the EU UN, but also EU level, were designed by, by corporate groups, by BP, uh, Shell and others. And we were already alerting on that and on the, and on the dangers of uh, what would it mean to base policy on market, on a market ideology. Uh, and we've seen like 25 years later, it's still the case. Like uh, it, it, it has made that actually corporate um, fossil fuel industry and other polluting industry have managed to still um, pursue like false solutions and not real uh, climate emission cuts anywhere. And this is already set there in, in, in indeed in 97 and in 2000 with very little alertness from the climate movement. On a personal level, um, how, how does that make you feel as a, as a researcher, as an activist, uh, noticing that the fundamental problems that you already identified then, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. basically still exist? <sighs> Depressed. <laughs> I mean, it's bad, but at the same time, I mean, with it, the, the, what is very positive, I think, is the, the increase in awareness. I mean be for climate or be for anything. I think it's people as social movements are so aware of the role that uh, lobby groups and big corporations play in the design of, of, of the policies and in the in the setting them up <laughs> and putting them in the agenda. No? Um, the, the main problem still is that this increased awareness mm-hmm. and actually anger or rage no, of, of, of outrageousness is not translated into policy achievements <laughs> or right. into, uh, into a big change. Mm. Um, so basically you describe that, that, that the, the growing awareness is now coinciding with a growing anger of genera- different generations yeah. basically seeing that we know more and more but if nothing is done with this knowledge by policymakers then they create they create basically 
certain movements, anti-politics, cynicism, uh, extreme right, yeah. uh, Euroskeptics and all of that. Yeah. Is that what you're trying to say? Partly, yes. I think you've, you've gone further, but yes, uh, yes. Indeed, when we were back in 95 and 97, we went with the counter summits to the EU. We tried to, it was already a bit difficult to make a, a critical, uh, you know, a critique of the EU that was not uh, either linked with a very, um, well, there was not so much far right like now, but there was still like, it, they monopolized the critique of the EU, you know, and to establish a good, a progressive critique of the EU uh, mm -hmm. was not that easy, but um, but I guess that is even worse now. And a lot of people has turned into this because indeed has a road democracy. You no, know? all this all this making policy together with big business at the cost of like Oli say the welfare state and many other mm. things. Still on a personal note, Olivier. Um, you described the well. There were four, four people basically doing this research yeah. at the early days, even before CEO was officially established. Yeah. Um, how how did that go? And you were you were environmental activist operating in Amsterdam. Yeah. Uh, wh why why this did did this story start in Amsterdam? What is there any reasons for this? Yeah, we we uh, we met each other and. Um, a youth environmental activist network called uh, ACEED Europe. So we're all working in, in the same office with other uh, youngsters, you could say, young activists. Um, and we're working on, on issues like uh, European transport policy or um, the role of multinationals in Central and Eastern Europe eh, after the fall of the wall, um, uh, trade policy and kind of global justice issues. We're working mm. on those. And... Um, yeah, and we, we found in many of those issues that we were working on that there was um, this problem with the the, the uh, positions taken by the by the EU, and we found uh, in many of those cases also a corporate lobby that had influenced those positions. Uh, yeah, but we were in the same office and we had these experiences uh, together. We we went to uh, global activist meetings with uh, demonstrations and and, and actions um, at EU summits at other events. So it was really a uh, yeah we had a strong bond, you could say, and this. Uh, collective vision of uh, what what needed to happen to get a, a fair and more um, more uh, ecological sound uh, world. Um, so that was kind of a, a good basis to have together for what what we then also continued um, doing as a, as a project, which was investigating corporate lobbying and 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 uh, and the power of that lobbying and shaping mm. the European Union. Mm. So this this really grew organically because you were a civil society grassroots you were interlinked yeah. working together in a on a European scale. Yeah. Thanks. But at the same time this is pre-internet. Yeah. Yes. How <laughs> uh, how how can you explain how you really started mm -hmm. looking and how did you realize really when when did you find out that it was worth looking closer at what was happening in Brussels? Yeah, I remember you talking about once about a receiving a fax yeah. from a an NGO in France. Yeah. can you explain a bit about this? You want to explain? Yeah, you can say yeah. the fax. It was it was the era of the fax indeed, and then um, there was that a uh, moment indeed where a fax came in from a, a society group, an activist group in the south of France. So the fax machine uh, was in the center of the office and it started making uh, uh, sounds. <laughs> and, uh, and this fax came out and they uh, and 
they uh, were um, uh, alerting to this uh, very destructive motorway project through a very, uh, uh, like a forest area that was very ecologically valuable and, and precious and, and vulnerable. Uh, I think it was the place where one of the remaining populations of the, of the, of the brown bear in, wow. in that part of Europe was, was still in place. And um, so they were asking for support from environmentalists elsewhere in Europe solidarity uh, work and, and from them we learned about the role of um, of corporate lobby groups that basically asked the European Commission to put this motorway on the list of priorities to get a lot of funding to get mm. uh, like a political priority to be constructed and they um, they uh, yeah so they really alerted us about this this problem that not all, that this kind of very destructive project, would destroy a, a nature area, but also, um, yeah, an example of the kind of transport policy that was uh, a terrible idea from the perspective of climate change was orchestrated from a corporate lobby group in Brussels. So, um, yeah, that was one of those moments that made us decide, well, we need to know more about this. Uh, how can a, uh, a corporate lobby group like that have that much influence, yeah. that kind of direct influence? Right. And are we, when you speak here in this context about the corporate lobby group, are we again talking about the European Roundtable yes. Industrialists? Yes. Abbreviation ERT. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We can yeah. use for now yeah. the ERT, yeah. otherwise it's very long. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the ERT was, I read, created in 1981 uh, by CEOs of Philips, uh, Volvo mm. and some other big Fiat, yeah. uh, Fiat mm. big companies. I think the Belgian businessman, politician Etienne Davignon, yeah. um, <laughs> or later also European Commissioner, played an important role there. Yeah. Mm. Um, what, what, what can you say about it? What, why is this beast called ERT, which is still very much alive today, yeah. why is it so important in this context, what, 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 according to you? Because it's... Um it's basically, I mean, you have a lot of different lobby groups, but this is uh, the captains of the 50, some 50 most important, bigger multinational groups, uh, companies in Europe. And they have really political power and economic power. So they have a leverage that is amazing. They have access to their, um, they, have, they are very influential with the governments of the national countries. So what, that's why they've chosen the two or three more important companies in each country, because they have this leverage over their national government, but also through the, for the commission. And for the, so at that moment, we were talking about that road in Paris, but this is actually the trans-European networks, <laughs> which is a um, thing that was uh, maybe you're fighting a local road, but you don't know that this is part of a big plan which is actually to kill the train and to start a lot more uh, road transport that it's only for serves the purpose more of uh, uh, the globalization that was coming, you know, the uh, free movement of uh, goods <laughs> cheap that favors the industry and uh, and for and, selling uh, more cars. For, yeah, as well. And uh, so yeah, because you have Volvo, you have so they have a lot of common interests. They have the political leverage to exercise this at all levels of of, of government, and uh, and they can sell it very well. <laughs> and it was well received because that's the other kind of thing, no? That was back when um, when the Lords was sitting there, uh, was the president of the Commission, and it was in his interest to to push for a rapid. Uh, he was federalist. He wanted a, a rapid development of a political union, 
But instead of going for that, he um, got the support of these business groups to move in the direction of a rapid European Union, creating the single market and other things in the way that was beneficial for them, um, for, these, for these corporations. But actually, um, <laughs> how do you say, bulldozing, you know, like uh, other environmental and social uh, concerns. So maybe we became alert by the side of the some local, very local thing that is affected by something that is designed from the very top. Right. Olivier, the words or the, 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 the term single market has been mentioned already several times, but I think you really should explain to us why this is such an important issue. And also, further on what Belen just said, um, the ERT as an open door to all the politicians. And mm-hmm. I always thought, or many people will think, well, these kind of projects, single market, etc., and you should really explain what it means. But um, that's a political project, but it was not. Uh, what I understood from your research, you found out that basically these were proposals done by the businessmen from the ERT, ERT yeah. and then taken on by the politicians. So it's, it's the other way around in a way. Yeah. Is that, is that correct? And can you start with explaining why the single market is such an issue? Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the single market was agreed in the, in the mid-80s and then constructed uh, over the next uh, 10, 15 and more years. And for the ERT, this was really um, a very strategic project because um, it meant that um, um, you create a unified market where rules were then made on the EU level. And uh, the EU level for them uh, was a very uh, a very good place to be. It was a place where it was easy to influence. They had these um, open doors to the European Commission, uh, also uh, EU governments uh, open doors there. So for them, moving decision-making to the EU level, uh, there was a big um, uh, benefit in that. Mm. Uh, and also we should remember that at that time you didn't have a strong uh, European-level civil society or environmental movement was not organized on that level. Trade unions were weak on that level. They were strong on the national level. They had their established uh, power there. Uh, but that counterpower didn't exist on, on the EU level. So uh, for the ERT, the single markets and also the following projects was, uh, was very much about um, bypassing the level mm-hmm. where counterpower was strong <laughs> and, uh, and going to a level where they had these uh, strong allies the European Commission particularly. So that uh, that was the strategic approach. And then, of course, uh, creating a, a, a single market was uh, an opportunity for e- each and every one of these multinational companies to grow stronger, to, to, to win markets everywhere, to become more dominant, and from there become more dominant globally as well. So the, the, the next part of it was the accelerating of economic globalization, which was very much based on a lot of decisions made eh, of, of opening markets. Uh, the creation uh, of, the, of the WTO, yeah. the World Trade Organization uh, yeah. in Geneva, exactly. was part of that evolution. In yeah, also. very much part of that same project, the mm. next stage of that project. And also there, the European Commission playing a very active role, uh, supporting business in, in expanding across the globe and removing so-called barriers mm. to uh, to trade and investment, um, so that that was uh, the strategic cooperation was there. The problem is that by by doing that, of course, you created a, a stronger 
EU, you could say, but you also unleashed market forces that uh, have not that have been that have grown so strong today that they are uh, an obstacle to uh, a lot of the the changes that we need to 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 tackle catastrophic climate change to uh, to save the welfare state to uh, avoid tax evasion all of these problems that we're facing with are very difficult to solve because of the market forces that have been unleashed and the and and multinational corporations have become so so powerful Mm. Um, that they are beyond uh, effective control. So uh, those decisions made back then have had very far-reaching effects. and We are still uh, facing them today. We are very much facing them today. Um, and of course, the power that corporations have today in Europe in decision-making mm. on a day-to-day -day basis on all kinds of laws and regulations, they're using the power that they built in the 90s and 2000s mm. that the that they were given in a way through all these changes uh, uh, market opening deregulation inside europe the global uh, globalization uh, process and so on that's where their power stems from and um it's very difficult to to control those corporations today their lobbying powers stems from that economic power that they've gained now i was always told um in school that it makes complete sense that if you create a European Union, that you create a level playing field, that you create this sort of single market, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. uh, that, that the same rules apply for uh, uh, economical actors or companies everywhere. So that is sort of the official narrative. But yeah. if I listen well to you, the problem is that, that the, 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 the rules of the game, in a way, the economical game, were really set by and for only companies, and especially the big ones benefited from that. Yeah. And, and, and it's also the, the narrative of the interest of companies are in an inherently good for society. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Is that yeah. Yeah, what is good for, <laughs> you can say business is good for Europe, or what is good for... Right. But I think also that what what they managed to do at that at that same time was on, on one hand achieving all these big policies, which was about the regulation and liberalization and this, and at the same time, and not only in the EU but also at the UN because that was also a Rio summit, you know, the Rio summit in '92. Yeah. They were they moved from and also even in Europe before they moved from uh, being um, an, an entity that had to be controlled. <laughs> You know, to suddenly be um, an actor, very important actor, <laughs> an ally on decision making, um, who there were not then subject to to um, to regulations anymore, but they they went ahead with the voluntary action. So they will claim, and I think that was the other key thing that happened maybe mm. at that time, also with the Rio, Rio in the at the beginning was with the attempt to regulate corporations, but it was the ERT and other groups who get were part of bigger international groups like the International Chamber of Commerce or <coughs> then the then the World Business Council for Sustainable Development was born as well. And that was the moment in which the UN also <laughs> started saying, okay, we're not going to regulate business. They are part of the solution and they're actors we're going to consult. And then you had the two levels. You had this at the EU, but you also have the the new multi-stakeholders where they were very... Um, actors that were good for society, and that's also, and I, and I think that idea came from uh, at every level, no UN, EU, and uh, and and governments, the national champions, like 
national champ, national governments wanted to favor the big corporations, so they had the win situation at every mm-hmm. level of, of right. state, and that became super hard to fight because every every policy that was coming from every level of governance was uh, designed and, and favoring their interests. We are talking also about the area where you mentioned already Jacques Delors as the president of the European Commission, uh, still considered as a visionary man, uh, François Mitterrand, uh, president in France, etc. I had always understood again as a young guy in school that European Union was a progressive project. When I listen to you and when I read the research what you have been doing for 25 years and longer, that is not really the case. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you look at it now? Yeah. Where did Jacques Delors got it wrong in, in your view now? Well, he made this big gamble uh, by teaming up with big business and then through that getting national governments to agree on these big flagship projects like the single market and the single mm. currency. Um, by, he, he made the gamble then that you would then almost automatically um, get a, 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 pol- a political union as well on top of it. And he thought that would be then when the progressive uh, policies would come automatically. Mm. A political union, union meaning also, as you just said earlier, uh, a, a stay for unions and for, for, for civil society yeah. and all of that, like yes. you had on a national level. Like creating a European welfare state, uh, like yeah. in to- on top of the markets and the, and the kind of economic unification you would get the political unification that he thought would bring a progressive Europe. Uh, so that was the gamble he made. Um, and un- unfortunately, I, th- I think we must uh, conclude that although there is, of course, um, uh, policy making on the EU level, and there are sometimes progressive um, achievements as well, um, the, the gamble failed. Um, he unleashed these market forces uh, that then uh, resulted in, a, of course, in, in a in an approach that was about letting um, le- letting markets solve problems and limiting what governments could do. Um, so that's, of course, the, the essence of the neoliberal thinking is that uh, you give uh, as much space to markets as possible, as much space as you can to markets and to, to large corporations. They will create wealth and that will trickle down to everyone. And governments should be restrained in what they can do because they just get in the way. Uh, the role of governments is just to create good conditions for for big business to uh, to do what they can do in society. So that thinking became dominant um, in in Europe, and we're still suffering from that today. And we're um, there are single market legislation, um, economic governance, and all these kind of controls on what governments can do, on what the possibilities that we have to intervene and solve problems in society. Um, so that that I think is part of the the, the failed gamble that Delors uh, made is by unleashing the market forces and thinking that they would create a European welfare state. That that never happened. That failed. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, Climate change is sometimes described as one of the biggest examples of market failure. Mm. Because as you described, Berlin, also already in those days, the answer of Europe was market-based solutions. But clearly, 25 years later, we can say that that has failed. We can say, but the EU still say that it's a a success. And they're actually exporting it to actively exporting <laughs> to other countries. You have more and more countries creating uh, carbon trading schemes promoted by the EU together with the World Bank. And they 
I mean, now the European Green Deal, what it's doing, no? the big flagship, it's saying the ETS has worked so good, we're going to expand it to new sectors. Yeah, the European Green Deal. So we say it's a failure <laughs> because it has uh, not created um, um, ambitious targets. It has not really uh, created reductions. It hasn't changed the structural things that needed to be changed. And it has actually rewarded yeah. polluters with windfall profits. So, yeah, it is a failure, but it's still sold, sold as a success. <laughs> that is strange because there are facts, like the 100 biggest polluters in Europe haven't been less yes. emitting uh, CO2 emissions, yes. and they have earned a lot of billions of uh, euros thanks to the ETS. But I know you know all that. But how is it then that, that there is such a difficulty in the, for the European Union to recognize and to learn from 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 the from the from the past 20 30 years do you have any idea I think that the, there is no interest <laughs> I mean there's no political will to go beyond cosmetic changes and uh, and um, not real intention to to tackle the the, the status quo no, of the system or something the European green deal is not <laughs> It's not a transformational project and it's never been intended, even if it's been sold as once. Um, yeah, I think they're basically interested. They, they've, they've, uh, they've honed their rhetoric on becoming a leader in many things, not only on climate, no? And they sell that very well. But when you look at the substance and the same, the ERT, they, they, their, their rhetoric is marvelous. It's about, uh, you know... Uh, <laughs> Helping everyone with the with the with the challenge of the green and the digital revolution, but uh, but what, when you look behind all these things, and the same for the um, climate policies or other, in the end is the same: is to help business continue doing what they done, what they do, to uh, not change the model that it's um, uh, very damaging, <laughs> and uh, and basically keep making profits mm. without restrictions. Yeah, I guess also a very important explanation in that. I mean, by having this kind of alliance with big business, mm. it helped the, the European Commission uh, get su support for proposals from member states. Mm. So for member states, governments, if they would hear from their large companies that they saw the proposal coming from the Commission was a good idea, mm. it would overcome the, that obstacle. And so for the Commission, it was also a, a power tool to have this alliance with some of these large very, very large, powerful corporations. And then, um, yeah, the, 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 the kind of the common projects between the EU member states agreed on was of making the European Union the most competitive bloc in the world. So international competitiveness yeah. became like the central goal, not avoiding catastrophic climate change as the primary goal or mm -hmm. making the world um, a more socially just place, but mm -hmm. international competitiveness so when that's your central goal, it steers a lot of uh, uh, decisions that come later on. And, uh, and of course, it gives um, big business like a structural power to um, everything that they would like to see happen. They can just present it as yeah. this is needed for international competitiveness. That, that's really yeah. a mantra. And that's maybe some nice example, because it was with Barroso, was it there, that mm -hmm. they made the Lisbon Agenda and... Mm -hmm. And that was like the putting international competitiveness like the main goal. Yeah. Let's make Europe the biggest. But where did Barroso end? <laughs> Goldman mm -hmm. Sachs. Goldman Sachs, yeah. Uh, yeah. When the you know mm -hmm. after so 
there's <laughs> it was a long career for a Trotskyist or a Marxist activist. Or um, but what I mean is that in the end, <laughs> it's a shared ideology that they that they yeah. that they share. And from that starting point, it's very difficult to make strong progressive choices. I, I think so. That that's been a fundamental point. The moment that that was agreed as the priority, the moment it was written mm. into the treaties, those are moments that you have to go back and evaluate because they were like watershed moments that way. Well, things went in the wrong direction from that moment on. Yeah, and take anything, take anything that you look at now, any any document, and they will say, oh yeah, climate change is needed, but we need to preserve the international competitiveness. Mm -hmm. That comes for every policy. You will see in agri, you will see in a lot of things, no? When there is something that is proposed, yes, we agree, we agree, but let's see how we implement that it doesn't damage the competitiveness, and that comes all the loopholes and all the... That mantra basically stems from the early days and is still, I mean, you explained it was part of the leitmotiv of the Lisbon mm -hmm. uh, Treaty and the Lisbon ag Agreement, but uh, basically it is even older than yeah. that. And, yeah. and it's still alive, the yeah. mantra. Yeah. Yeah. A little flash backwards, um, still, um, on, on, on a personal level, the research that you did in the early days when there was no interest mm -hmm. whatsoever in these kind of topics, um, you once decided to go to the ERT because you couldn't go to internet um, uh, to check them out. You had to basically really physically go there. Can you, uh, Holiday, can you, ex can, can <laughs> yeah. you explain what, what happened? What did you do? You, you, you wrote them a letter, I think, even? Uh, can you explain? Uh, well, I think that was in 1994. We had uh, we had a, a youth environmental activist gathering, and uh, we decided. Uh, basically, it came out of this concern with uh, the, the the power of the European Roundtable of Industrialists and the direction that their power was leading Europe into eh? a destructive direction, uh, in our view. So, so basically, we we decided to do an occupation of their offices out of protest uh, with. Had this destructive influence of the ERT, and uh, and it was really meant to to inform Europeans through the media of this um, uh, unacceptable influence of this lobby group. So uh, we managed to get into the uh, the offices, and uh, the Secretary General of the ERC decided, okay, he would take his staff out for lunch and just leave us there. Um, and and then we started sending out sending press releases via fax <laughs> from their fax machine um, to bring out our message about the ERT or concerns about the ERT. And um, because we spent an afternoon there, we also had a look around in the office and we we found this archive with with um, with letters and and faxes between the ERT and uh, heads of governments, European Commission, some of the um, the prime ministers in Europe at that time. Mm -hmm. So we're really honestly astonished and shocked to see what kind of high level access and easy access they had. They would be on on first name basis and communicating by by fax, uh, arranging when to meet next, and sending back and forward. Uh, demands and responses and so on, like a, a really close dialogue. Mm. And uh, yeah, we knew it was bad, but we didn't know that it was that bad. We saw it really black and white, how bad it was. But for research, because that was the occupation, but for yeah. research it was funny, because indeed you couldn't just like, so we we did interview trips. Um, 
And, um, After the action. Yes, yes, like when interviews. to start, like, okay, so we found the ERT and make an appointment for an interview. But I remember in Amsterdam going with Olivier to find a, in a second-hand shop some jacket to to be able to wear to the interview and these things. To right? look like a lobbyist. <laughs> or in, yeah, or to, look respectable, but, to look respectable. But we, did, but we didn't look because it still had this uh, purple hair or <laughs> Did I really? Yes. Ah, I think maybe. <laughs> that could be true or maybe not. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. but, um, and then we also went four of us to the to to UNICE was calling then uh, Business Europe. Yeah. And um uh, before they throw us out, we, we managed to also take a lot of, uh, we went in the library and take some things. We basically went to libraries, uh, get reports, order reports, read them, nothing on internet. For Europa Bio, um, we went there pretending we were biotechnology students um, trying to get information. Wow. So it was this kind of research. It Undercover. Was, uh, Basically, what Gunter Walraaf as a journalist also did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Going somewhere and yeah, pretending to be someone else. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. That's how we manage. I think we cover like this a lot of international chamber of commerce program meetings and a lot of things. Mm -hmm. But, but the action in 1994 yeah. with the, the ERT, the, the occupation, yeah. and then the copying and basically seeing the, the actual evidence on yeah. the paper. Can we say that was the embryo? of the later creation of CEO? Yeah, that was like a really eye-opening moment, indeed, uh, of, of realizing the, the degree of privileged access that was there. And, and really that uh, crucial decisions mm. were being pre-cooked in, in conversations between mm. between this, this, this corporate lobby groups and heads of state and, and mm. European commissioners. That was really shocking. That was so different, so far away from what democracy should look mm -hmm. like that it really motivated uh, me and I think motivated us to um, to take up this problem and take up this issue and do something about it. And what was the moment that you, the, the little bunch of people, activists, researchers, sort of really, when can we say that you really started to work as CEO in Amsterdam? When, when and how did that happen? As a, as a this thing was just a project. While we yeah. were in a seat, we wanted to do that. And after that, we decide, well, we would continue a bit longer. We start with a newsletter um, just to inform the movement, no? Because oh. it was... Uh, so when you say this... Uh, the report, Europe sorry, Inc. Europe Inc. 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 The first, right, the first right. report. In 97. Uh, that was like a doc. We didn't even... I think... I don't know if it says the name here. Because we came with a yeah, name. It, let's it, say, it, yeah, it's already, yeah, yeah, yeah. Corporate Europe Observatory okay. is mentioned in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so... That, that is where you were physically together in an, in an office? No, no really not in an office. We worked in cafes for two years. Our first office was in 1999 in the yeah. Paulus Potter yeah. We right. We... we Piggyback with the Transnational Institute in yeah. an office. So the first two years of CEO were actually happening in Amsterdam cafes. In cafes. Yeah. We had writing sessions indeed yes. in the quiet cafe, um, once per week, quiet, yes. once per week or so, and we would yeah. kind of uh, do writing in between, <laughs> yeah. and we would come and discuss the, yeah. the and in the, the offices results. in the weekends we could use the Friends of the Earth office because yeah. Anne was working already there, yeah. so we went there, but uh, there yeah. was no office for two yeah. years. Yeah. And I remember a writing session uh, on the countryside in oh, the yes. holiday house for, for yes. a long weekend, uh, <laughs> yes. writing 24 yes. hours per day as well, yeah, yes. uh, something like that. So that was, uh, that was the way we worked in these. So in essence, CEO is a very critical watchdog, but it's also a very social um, 
organization. Absolutely, yes. yeah. yeah. That was been the case from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. When and how did you start discussing in between you in your in your office in 1999 in Amsterdam? that it might be a good idea to move to Brussels. Was that idea already living then, back no. then? No, not in 99, not. No, we would go uh, very regularly by train to Brussels, but uh, I think the idea to open an office in Brussels only came in uh, um, 2008. 2008. Yeah. It was a difficult debate. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it was a, yeah, but that was really 2008. We became more active since we started doing lobby tours and these things. That was 2004. Then was going more and more regular to Brussels. Uh, but we travel a lot because we yeah. were all the time going to all activist gatherings and movements. We were we were really then all the time in the move. I remember yeah. years where we I was. I passed home in Spain two months. Yeah. So yeah. instead of having your office in cafes, you had your office in trains, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On, on yeah, yeah. We were all the time, all the time. Yeah. So and that okay. So and you did a lot of lobby tours and, and activism and research, always going back to Brussels. And out of that grew the idea of hmm, maybe it would be more efficient to to establish ourselves in Brussels. And I yes. think when then come this debate also with the with the starting fo- try to to create the debate about lobbyists and about uh, transparency. Mm-hmm. and this thing and the, I, I, the, the yeah. seeds of alter-EU, no? Yeah, yeah I think uh, from 2004, um, indeed, we had a, uh, uh, an attempt to um, break through the taboo that existed in the Brussels bubble. Lobbies was exist- not dis- yeah. discussed. The, Discussing just, there was not lobbying that, power. That was yeah. not an issue. Yeah, I mean, so we wanted to do something about this. That was a very fundamental problem because we could we could expose a lobbying scandal one after the other. But if if journalists felt that this sounded like conspiracy thinking, um, then then they wouldn't cover it. Mm. Then that was uh, that was a structural problem. So then, um, uh, indeed, when a new commission arrived in 2004, we uh, initiated together with other NGOs this open letter that was basically about this yeah. structural problem of corporate lobby groups having far too much power and also agenda-setting power, and the commission wanting to team up with them. There were, we had many examples of that, and we said this new commission really had to do something about corp- excessive corporate power, and yeah. it's the first step. The really the minimum that needed to happen that anyone should be able to agree to was more transparency around lobbying uh, a transparency register that's that that is yeah. that is needed and then um and then you had uh, the new commissioner from estonia Simkalas, who to our surprise liked the idea and invited us to have a conversation and then actually mm-hmm. proposed the European Transparency Initiative. And then that whole debate about a lobby register, should it be mm. mandatory, should it be voluntary, it mm. brought the issue of, of lobbying into the acceptable sphere. It was a, it yeah. was a huge uh, anger. I mean, think that yeah. they went from, how was it, 650 lobbyists in the 80s in Brussels to around 30,000 in, mm. in few years, you know? that, that Suddenly it was a, a paradise. It's what we always describe like, like a lobby paradise because all these institutions, all the decision-making and the way it was organized, and we didn't know at the beginning when we started working on the era in the 90s, we didn't know that. Mm-hmm. We find more and more like as advisory groups, uh, expert groups, how policy is set from, from the beginning, all these things, no? And in the end it's Brussels, Brussels, Brussels. Thank you very much for your work and for your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Hans. Thanks, Joanna. 
We've come to the end of this podcast. A special thanks goes out to my guests Olivier Houdeman and Belen Balagna for sharing their knowledge with us. Also a big thank you to Marc Baroner and my colleagues Jan Kallewaert and Joanna Luca for their technical assistance. If you like this podcast and if you value the work of CEO, then please support us by spreading the word in your networks and communities. And please support us financially to stay independent. Every donation, small or big, means the world to us. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned. Stay safe. <laughs>